Hello and welcome to another episode of Bullet Points. My name is Edward Smith, I'll be your host. I'm joined, as ever, by my fellow Bullet Point comrades, Reed McCarter. Hi. Hi, Ed. Hi, hi Reed. How are you? Oh, miserable. How are you? I'm intensely miserable. I've never been more miserable in my life. Let's talk about I, video games. I hate doing this show. <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> Uh, and to my right is my other co-host, Patrick Lindsay. How are you, Patrick? I am great. Just to kind of play the foil to read right now. Yeah, just yeah. rub it in, why don't you? Are you 10 yeah. out of 10? Um, no, 8 out of 10. Let's, I'm not the Ocarina of Time, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, to add to the already bursting energy of this show, uh, we have for you this week a very special guest. We are joined by... Uh, Ethan Gack, a freelancer for Killscreen. Ethan, how are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. Did I pronounce your name wrong? Is it Gack or Gatch? It's actually Gatch, allegedly. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, it's okay. I've stopped we gotta correcting start everyone. all over again. Yeah, like, just... if, it, if this was a proper thing, like a proper show made by real people, then we'd restart and do it again. But I think that we'd, we'll just push on. I mean, if that's all right with you, Ethan, uh, yeah, if you don't I mind. Yeah, I should have just said it was, it was correct. What we can do is we can cut this out and like post it in the director's cut of this podcast episode. Yeah, <laughs> this will be DLC for this episode. Proper pronunciation yeah, DLC. Gotta bury that in the, the bungee uh, lore cards. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you're, are you okay, Ethan? Are you having a nice day? I am. I'm getting hyped for the holidays. Got some eggnog. Sweet. What? Hang on. Is that not? Were those? Are those unrelated statements? <laughs> I don't. I don't think so. We okay. don't really. We don't really have eggnog in the UK. I don't know what it is. I mean, I know what it is, but I don't know. I don't know what it's. What the constituent parts of eggnog are. Does anyone though? The important one is rum, basically. Yeah. Um, that's the only way that anyone can really stomach eggnog. Is it oh, rum? I, I love it. Is it rum and eggs? Well, there's uh, and and milk and and some sugar and vanilla. Oh, you're drinking a cake, is what you're Basically, doing. Basically, yeah, yeah. It's so like a thick milkshake. If if an egg went out and got dr- like Humpty Dumpty went out and got drunk, eggnog is what he would throw up at the end of the <laughs> night. <laughs> by the sounds of it. Yeah, that Lovely. sounds about right. Okay. Regurgitated holiday cheer. Mmm, delicious. Yeah. Good. Okay. Well, now I'm sure you can enjoy that much more now, Ethan. I hope I've made that even more <laughs> tantalising for you. Um, so yeah, we've got two miserable hosts, two chirpy, friendly hosts. So that's a nice balance. Uh, however, I feel like we should all be pretty miserable and dour and depressed and grey today because we're talking about Max Payne, uh, Remedy's third-person shooter from 2001. Uh, originally for the PC, ported to the PS2, Xbox, spawned two sequels, uh, the latter of which of course was developed by Rockstar in 2012. Uh, And it's a very sad game, it's a bleak game, it's a miserable game, it's a violent game. Or is it? Or is it trying too hard to be all those things and fails to be them and it's a little bit comic book and boyish and rubbish? That's what we're here to find out, guys. (laughs) So That was really uh, good. Thanks, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been taking lessons in presenting. I can tell. Um, so, everyone's played it in preparation 
for this show. Uh, I'm going to throw first to Ethan, since you're the guest, you can have the privilege and also the terrifying responsibility of voicing your opinion first. What do you think of Max Payne? Oh boy, what a, what a rad game. Uh, mm. I It is so different than I remember it, and I think I, I remember it only in terms of loathing it and loathing my cousin playing it and having to watch him play it instead of like putting on Mario or something. And I just I don't know. There's there's so many great things in terms of the all of the the voice acting and the the muddy textures. I mean, it's it's glorious in a kind of like in a in a PS2 way or like a PC circa early 2000s kind of way. Where at the time, I actually think I probably would have liked it a lot less. But looking back on it now, it just seems like this great cult treasure. Mm. I I already agree with Ethan. Patrick, let me throw to you. What do you think of Max Payne? Um, so Max Payne is a game that I played when it went back when it first came out. I was a freshman in high school, and it made me feel weird then. And I played it again, and it made me feel weird now. And I think it's because it does this really weird thing where it just like scrapes like the crap off of the underbelly of every disgusting city, and like drops you into that environment. And it's really unsettling. And I think that, in in my opinion the environment and the sort of mood is probably the best thing about the game. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to say that it's not fun to play because I'm, it is for I'm sure. We'll get into the reasons for that. But I think pro- possibly even in spite of itself, it's just the environment has really got under my skin. Reed? I love it. I, what a game, man. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> it's just... I don't know. It's so pure. You know, mm. it's a game that knows what it wants to do, and it's, I think it's, it's, it's gleefully stupid in a lot of ways, mm. but I think it's made by people who are are aware of what they're doing, and they're intelligent people making something that's like really silly, you know. Uh-huh. See, I can't, I can't tell if I agree with you or not. I don't know. Well, that's what we have a podcast for. Yeah, I suppose you're to right. battle it out. I, I think it's a mixture of all three of these things. I think it's funny, uh, violent, great to play. Uh, yeah, I think it's really lovingly sort of visual. I think um, all the voice actors are great. I think it is stupid. I think it's also very bright. I think it's very scary. I think it's very fun. Uh, I think it's a really, really fantastic combination of lots and lots of different things. And just as a result, uh, has, yeah, a lot of energy and a lot of, um, a lot of pep. Uh, which is what we're all about on this show Um, so I think what I'd like to kind of start on if we're getting into the discussion properly um, rather than go straight into like mechanics and stuff is is more to talk about um, what Patrick was referring to the environments the sort of uh, it's a horrible video game reviewers cliche but the atmosphere the tone the um, I don't know emotion the sort of energy if you like of Max Payne um, I'm going to go right back to Reed. How would you quantify and characterize Max Payne on those grounds? Well, it's got this great thing, and I don't know if this is going to make me seem like a weird person, but the the sort of dirtiness of it is something that I find really enjoyable to uh, uh, spend time in. <laughs> it has mm. this it has this atmosphere to me, almost of like being in a kind of a shitty bar um 
around Christmas time. You know, it's it's got mm-hmm. this kind of like knowing dirt to it that doesn't get under my skin in any way. It just kind of feels like it's uh, I don't know. I'm I'm getting turned around here because I, no. I I I think there's it's a it's a hard thing to describe why I like it, but I like that it's it's so invested in trying to show the the shitty rundown parts of a city. Mm. I think squalor is a, a good word yeah. to sort of define Max Payne's environments because they kind of go from, you know, like a knackered old subway to a horrible rundown block of flats filled with, you know, drug addicts, people who are actually, just, you find them dead from drug overdoses, um, to like abandoned factories, you know, car parks. It's a game that is, yeah, sort of, but it, what it, what it sort of avoids, I think what it gets around is... Uh, it's not like fetishistic you know like we talked about right. Tomb Raider and, it, and it, Tomb Raider kind of it's like mud wrestling it sort of loves pouring filth all over itself and it's kind of like Ugh, and just kind of like so <laughs> so pained by itself it's like you can't believe the amount of agony it's in Tomb Raider it's like such a sort of tragic <laughs> hero um, whereas Max Payne it's sort of squalid and sort of fecund but it sort of finds joy in that in a different way it, it kind of has a love for those environments it's sort of um it finds them sort of amusing and funny and colourful and I think gets something from them that stops them just being sort of masturbatory and a bit try-hard. Um, Patrick, what do you think about that? Um, yeah, I would I would agree. I, I definitely don't think that it is um, self-referential to the point where it's just getting ridiculous, kind of like a, a Tomb Raider. Um, it's almost kind of like when you go to that shitty bar and then you see the people who are there um, because they're having an experience of going to a shitty bar, and then you see like the grizzled old townie in the corner, mm. um, who's completely authentic. Like it's it's that basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wait, go back to that a bit though. Like, what do you mean? Like, well, I mean because it has so so it it does show you like the lowest and the grimiest parts of the city, but also to the exclusion of everything else. There is never a, a single point in that entire game that you ever see an environment that just isn't disgusting and desolate and caked in filth. This is literally, for the people involved in this story, this is their just entire world, and nobody even really remarks on it. Um, yeah. Like, the fact that there are people dying of overdoses in hotel rooms and stuff, like, Max will make a couple of comments. There's, there's actually, there's one point where you're escaping after being kidnapped by a mob boss, which sounds really generic, but happens a lot in this game. And uh, you come across like a sewer grate, and you look down, and there's just a pile of dead bodies that have been oh, dumped yeah. down there. And he's just like, "Oh well, there's that." Mm. It's like these are the people who are just used to this kind of stuff. Mm. I th- I think that's very befitting of a video game because we're, as people who play lots of video games, sort of quite used to violence and used to grot and sort of not really probably that appalled by it, which says something about your average video game player but I think Max is a great character in as much as having that sort of deadpan attitude to the whole thing because it's like oh yeah there's some more corpses of course you know um, Ethan how about you what do you think about the sort of tone of Max Payne well so on the squalor front I think it does a good job of engaging with that on two lever- levels there's obviously the you know the designers say we want to have this very squalor um, atmosphere 
But then you could see someone, you could see like a Bioshock game taking that to an extreme where, like you said with uh, Tomb Raider, you're constantly trying to make every part of the environment ooze that. Whereas I think partly because of the limits of what they're able to do at the time with the technology, many of the rooms are very empty and not necessarily on purpose, but just because that they couldn't fill it with tons of stuff. And so mm. there's the spaces have this very minimalist, empty feel by virtue of where the technology's at that I think in retrospect adds a ton to the game where for instance even in later Max Payne's especially by Max Payne 3 there's it's a very different aesthetic and it's not capturing that same sense of uh, kind of loneliness or futility in the same way mm. yeah absolutely I think those are two really that's never really occurred to me before but yeah I mean you consider the game starts in an abandoned subway station and goes to yeah like a block of flats that's kind of condemned to be demolished and then there's like an abandoned nightclub and yeah this is also a game about you know a man who's kind of on his own not just in the game but generally he lives alone he is alone um yeah i think that really works as well um it's in- yeah it's interesting too what ethan says about the just the fidelity of it because i think yeah the the conversation would change a bit if if this was uh on par graphically with you know where we're at now in games where they might feel the need to you know really fill out every space with with extra stuff i think it it quote unquote environmental storytelling oh yeah but i think it that that possibly would tip it over the edge of of feeling kind of like it's reveling in its in its filth squalor it's like what Patrick was saying about going to the, the rundown bar, it's like when you have a black box theater that has a limited budget of, you know, 500 maybe maybe $1,000, and what what they do with that in order to create a certain feel in the space versus if you go to Broadway and you want to put on a play, you know, if you're going to do Les Mis, all these things, all of a sudden, you, you have almost unlimited funds, and so you're going to basically, you're going to, every chance you have an opportunity to do something instead of not do something, you're going to do something. Right. Whereas here, there's a sense, there's I don't know, there's a minimalism throughout the entire game that reminded me a lot of. It just it felt pure in a way that if uh, you know if this were released today, it would be like this avant-garde experimental shooter where it's like, oh my gosh, look at all these things that they didn't do, and look how uh, you know centered and focused the experiences. Hmm. Hmm. Absolutely, it would. Um, where I'd personally pull back is. Um, calling Max Payne authentic or, or necessarily even saying that the sort of squalid uh, environments and the sort of slightly depressed tone is authentic. I think it's actually quite um, hyperbolic and sort of affected and I, I don't really go for that game as a sort of uh, insight or any kind of like, I don't know, it doesn't have like a journalistic or documentarian quality of this is what it's like in the seedy underbelly of real American cities. To me, it, it, it always seems, you know, vaguely TV detective show or... Dickensian. Uh, <laughs> or even like a horror movie in places, you know? And um, Oh, no, definitely like a horror movie. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the in the context of that, too, is, I, you know, they're, they're obviously trying to do a send-up of a very specific aesthetic. You know, they're trying to do the uh, their vision of American noir. You know, well, and and also John Woo, which is right, yeah, yeah, someone who I'm as a director, I don't really have much experience with, but whose name is dropped continuously in the game and also the discussion around the game. Yeah, um, I, I've seen 
a handful of John Woo films and I can't remember if I did this at university whether I ever wrote anything about him but sort of discussed him a lot with peers and whatever um, the John Woo stuff yeah I think that the one thing that always um, stands out to me about John Woo films is that when somebody gets shot in John Woo films they get shot in in a single shot so you don't see like the hero fire a gun and then it cuts and you see the bullet hitting a guy you they're both on screen at the same time so you get the, you get the trigger pull the gun going off and the squib hit and the guy dying all in like a one shot right um, and that's something that for me that way of shooting movies is a lot more akin to how video games work where you shoot someone and it doesn't cut and you don't get like a sort of break it is just firing and they die um, so I think that the John Woo stuff in Max Payne largely is either belongs to games generally or I don't know if it's slightly token I mean the, the sort of bullet time stuff you know this is a game made in 2001 uh, you know two years after The Matrix so yeah I don't know the, 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 the filmic influences for me are actually a bit of a kind of roadblock to enjoying it I sometimes feel it like it's a little bit plagiaristic and kind of I don't know. I I could enjoy that game almost I, more otherwise. I was actually unclear about like I wanted to talk about the whole bullet time thing because it's just such a delightfully bizarre lampshade that in in no way ties into the rest of the game setup, but it's just there and it's just you just take it at face value and you're mm. like, okay, well this is a thing that we can do. Um, and I think with the exception of that one quote self aware kind of cutscene during the second prologue, um, it's never really acknowledged that he has this ability. Mm. He just does. Yeah, there's some thugs talking about it at one point, saying that. Oh, are they? Saying that they don't really. They're talking about it as if it doesn't really exist, though. It's kind of a winking thing where they're saying, you know, have you watched these John Woo movies? You know, imagine you could fly through the air with two pistols and everything would seem like it slows down. Yeah, wouldn't that be cool? And then you jump around the corner and do that. Yeah. Do that exact thing, yeah. See, I, I quite like that they don't bother to explain it or talk about how he does it or why he does it or, or anything. I, I actually do sort of enjoy it as just a, you know, just a sort of seasoning. Well, I think it, um, it kind of works the way everything in the game works. Like, the, the comic book panels and everything is... To me, there's no reason to question much of why it's mm, right. it's set up the way it is it just is you know mm. like you know from the first moments of that game when the music starts and then you you know you hear Max's voiceover that exactly what they're trying to be you know mm. it's yeah. sort of like they made it with the proviso that alright you know what this game is and if you, as like once you accept that we're just gonna assume that we're all we're all good there and we're just gonna get on with doing this mm-hmm yeah, that's it. I think that I, one of the things I like most about Max Payne, is this sort of willingness to just do and and sort of worry later or not worry at all. Um, and there's lots of kind of, you know, like with all the like Norse mythology stuff and the fact that the sort of final boss of the the first part of the game is this like ranting, raving, I'm going to become a god, lunatic, and that's just kind of disposed with. And then you know you've got like these nightmare sections and all this stuff about the mob boss having a wife who's got a twin and it's really kind of you know just absurd and sort of yeah why not you know do it make it so he can be slow motion do all the cutscenes in comic books etc etc and yeah it just it plays so well because it never it never runs out of ideas they just they just chuck it in with Max Payne um, 
but still make it consistent. They still make it all flow. It's like it's it's a bit of a miracle, I think. Yeah. I think um, we I think we have to pause for one second here. No. Is everyone okay? Yep. Sorry, I just heard okay. something drop, and then I thought Patrick was gone. No, I think we're all here. Sorry then for <laughs> hearing things. Um, so there's a there's a podcast edit point around the twenty minute twenty second mark. Um, but yeah, let's get back to it then. Um, so I'm going to throw to Ethan. What do you think about the uh, sort of shooting in Max Payne? What do you think about the the general act of shooting? How does it feel? What does it sort of say to you, if anything? Well, so I. As far as shooting goes, it's it's kind of dreadful in that, I mean, it's not really accurate. There's no sights, and I should say at least by conventional two thousand circa two thousand fifteen standards, you kind of get in there and you're like, well, this isn't. You can't really take cover. All the traditional methods you would use in order to engage with enemies with a gun, you kind of they go out the window, um, which forces you to sort of embrace the not only the bullet time but also the instant save feature. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it oh, I, I leaned on that heavily. Yeah. When it, I, I don't know about you guys, but I predominantly used the shotgun, and mm-hmm. it almost it felt less like shooting, even though it has outrageous range. It felt more like you know, basically like punching someone at long range. Like mm-hmm. there's basically there's all these targets in the room that have giant bullseyes, and it's all about making sure that you can, you know, hit them as soon as possible. And so it's less about exchanging gunfire than sort of uh, doing like a I don't know, like a, a relay race almost with hmm. all of the targets. Yeah, it's almost like you're trying to make a best of, you know, like like every time you're <clears throat> quick saving and quick loading back into it, uh, the enemies kill you really quickly. Yeah, they and do. So I didn't Especially if you get close, it's just impossible. Yeah, so it's almost like you just you keep trying to get the perfect entrance into a room, which mm-hmm. almost works in a way. It's it's you know clunky. it's very twitchy. Yeah, but it almost yeah it is. There's a lot of trial and error involved with it. Yeah, but I, I was using the the when you have the two handguns, and that's almost just like painting. Like you mm. you enter, you dive into a room, and you try to just make sure you swipe across the guys who are <laughs> shooting at you. Yeah, it's it's not it's like fruit well, ninja style. Yeah, <laughs> that brings up an interesting thing that I wanted to mention is because of the way that the ballistic system is modeled, where the bullets are actual like game objects. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the, none of the weapons are hit scan, which for a shooter is really really strange. Um, so there's the, it does this weird thing to the quote unquote game feel, where there's a really slight delay between when you shoot at somebody and when you see the bullet hit them. Um, which you can use to your advantage in bullet time. I think you're supposed to, but it, you like you really have to learn the the physics of the game, and you really have to like lead people and all that stuff, and it is very difficult. Mm. Yeah, you see, I, I kind of, I can remember, you know, if you hit pause, you get that great sort of spinning camera around Max. Uh, is that just on the PlayStation version? I know they. No, I think that's something in the second one, but I don't know if they put it in on the PlayStation it's, for. 
it's in the PS2 version of, of Max Payne, which is the one that I played, the original yeah. Max Payne. And yeah, you hit pause and you get this great sort of panoramic camera that goes all around the room to show what you've just paused. And you can see yeah, bullets in midair, people like falling over, shell casings and stuff like that. And I think there is a sort of performative element to the, the gunplay in Max Payne. Like Reed was saying, you kind of you go over and over again trying to get the perfect entrance into a room or the perfect kind of sequence of kills. Um, but I also think that, like Ethan was saying, you know, you, you don't have cover, you don't really have like an aiming system, and you're kind of encouraged to, um, I, I think, like sort of be quite blunt and sort of quite brute force in gunfights. And a friend of mine brought this up a while ago, and I thought it was a really good point, is that you're playing as a guy who's kind of like depressive and suicidal and like he's on a death wish, and you're kind of encouraged and almost forced to play the game in that mindset where you're not taking cover, you're not really being careful, you have to just sort of rush and spray and hope. Um, so I can understand, yeah, like there is that element of the ballistic systems like leading people and being performative and trying over and over again, but I've always played the game as, yeah, like a sort of just like a bum rush and just kind of steaming through and hoping for the best and, you know, most of the time just sort of scraping through gunfights. Um, and it's always felt like a really good sort of blend of what you're doing and who you're playing as for that reason. Um, yeah, that yeah, that works pretty well with you know the way Max is portrayed as the game goes on too. Is that he's very much aware that he's possibly going to die at any second. Mm. You know the the, the graphic novel cutscenes, the comic strips show him uh, just going from one place to the next, and toward the end talking about how he's a headache and he's you know roughed up and he's just going to keep charging ahead anyway. So it does mm -hmm. match up nicely with with uh, the, what the story is saying too. Mm. Also, the the final difficulty setting on the game, I believe, is you have to complete each section in under a minute. Oh, that you makes get bonus sense. Bonus time for each enemy you kill, but basically it drives you to go basically speed run it and to kind of not sit back, but go forward and keep trying until you're able to you know get everything on the first time. And mm -hmm. I think I'm not sure if it's the same setting or an additional one where you're li actually limited in the number of saves you have per chapter. Hmm. Right. Oh, that's rough. But it, yeah, it makes sense if they're trying to guide you toward that being the intended way to uh, to do well at the game. Mm. Yeah, I think you, you sort of win in Max Payne. I think in, in all three of them, especially in three actually, I think you, can, you almost win by being uh, careless and just sort of blazing in there and it's it's sort of lilted in a way or sort of weighted somehow that that is beneficial as opposed to a lot of shooters where you know duck cover health recharge aim <laughs> move, you know um, this is more about sort of blazing in which is helped by the AI which I know at the time a lot of people sort of uh, tagged as being overly assertive and or just random but it's almost it's almost fun when you are up next to a door and people on the other side of the door recognize that you're there before you recognize that you're even, you know, what's even going on. Yeah. And the, the way the AI kind of jumpstarts each encounter and is kind of terrible, but also forces a lot of interesting situations where you can, you know, redo the same fight three, four, five times and people don't necessarily go where you think they're going to go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's almost, uh, I started thinking of it this time because, uh, you know, this would be the first time I've replayed it since Hotline Miami came out, but there are a lot of moments in that game that feel pretty similar. That same kind of just headlong rush into a room, take the guys out as quickly as possible, you know, and the, yeah. and they do 
yeah. like Ethan was saying, they do a lot of times the AI is just they're just gonna run toward you. And they're mm-hmm. going to, to you know, be super aggressive. Yeah. Um no, I think that Hotline Miami and Max Payne have a, a, a huge amount of similarities. And I think that they, they have one similarity in particular in that they could probably both be played two different ways. I think Hotline Miami, you can plan and be careful and be sort of, you know, try and be like precognitive and, and work it all out and then execute a plan. Or you can just, yeah, storm it. Um, I think in Max Payne, you can try and be a bit careful and a bit performative and sort of a bit sort of balletic about it. Or you can just, you know, rush it. Um, yeah. Um, but the, um, one of the key things I wanted to sort of fall back to on, because uh, it's more sort of to do with like atmosphere, tone, etc., um, is the writing. Now, there's a lot of kind of fourth wall breaking stuff, there's a lot of um, jokes in inverted commas, there's a lot of cliche, and also there's the awful fridging narrative archetype right at the beginning, as in Max's wife and daughter are both killed. And that's like it happens happen. twice. It, it happens, happens twice. twice. Oh yeah, no, that's true. Now, all of these things that I've just listed would normally make me go, well that's a terribly written game, that's a really badly written game. For some reason, I like Max Payne. I like the story of Max Payne, I like the script of Max Payne. I'm not entirely sure why. Um, Ethan, what do you think? Um... I think from the bird's eye view, the uh, so when I, I when I think of script, I think of specific dialogue points versus the overall plot lines or, or character arcs. And I think in terms of the plot, I think it's actually pretty competent, and I actually really appreciate the sort of allegorical overlay of a lot of uh, Norse mythology and the way that heightens everything. Um, on the dial, and, and you know, I I actually having played it now and refreshed my memory on the story, I actually think it's almost a shame that I think there's a really interesting way in which you can have Max's uh, family not actually be his family and Mm. kind of take it on another route of like, oh, he's actually just a junkie uh, soldier that, you know, (laughs) came up with this whole other narrative for his life, but actually he's the one that's been doing all these killings and such. Um, But on the the actual dialogue, which I think is sort of the, the meat of the game, I think it lends Max, who would otherwise be a sort of very hardened uh, detective type, it, it makes him very poetic and almost Chaucer-like. You know, he's not rhyming and, and serving up couplets, but so many of his uh, similes and metaphors and stuff are so hammy that it makes... It's like, who's this guy who is... You know, he's been undercover for three years, and he's killing all these people, and this, these horrible things were done to his family, and yet he's got this really flowery way of describing what's going on around him. Mm. <laughs> you think that kind of lifts it into something else? Well, so there's this great... I was reading a bunch of reviews today, and there's this great line about how it's someone was trying to say that it was both... Uh, you know, he's completely deadpan, but also at the same time melodramatic, which mm. are kind of contradictory things, but I understand the, the instinct there to say that there's a way in which his completely flat delivery gives it this heightened feeling that I think, you know, it lifts it from whatever burden it would have if it was if it was trying to stay closer to some Bogart realism. Like, you know, obviously Bogart, um, Humphrey Bogart, noir is still kind of ridiculous, but there's definitely a sense of wanting to be more grounded. Whereas this, between the comic book panels and Max's lines, make it feel you know like you're not supposed to take it on those terms. 
Mm-hmm. I think that it is, uh, you know, to call it sort of pulpy or junky feels um, a bit insulting and pejorative because I think there's there's a lot of care and uh, a lot of thought gone into the writing of Max Payne. Um, but it's certainly, and it's not it's not like it's sort of um, self-aware and like self-critical and like postmodern, but like Joss Whedon, like <laughs> oh, is, is, isn't this stupid? What a stupid character! Deconstructing noir. Yeah, it's not. It's not. Oh, God. It never sort of devolves into like self-parody, but it has just like a levity and a kind of, I think, just like a willingness to go along with all of its things. You know, it just, it just sort of enjoys itself. Well, um, it's, it's like what we talked about when we talked about Resident Evil Four, mm-hmm. and you get the sense that there, is, there is a silliness to it, but it comes. And and this I don't think is is in the same level of campy as is something like Resident Evil, but it seems like Remedy loves the things that they're talking about, you know, mm. that they are sincere when they're trying to craft the most kind of tortured metaphors for snow mm. falling or something, you know, that they're <laughs> they're really thinking like what would Raymond Chandler do if he didn't have an editor and. I don't know. Was just oh, was just letting it all out, you know. It yeah. it has that kind of feel to it, which is really endearing. Mm. Yeah, I think it has. It's got a, a, a big affection for its sort of source material and its its inspirers. Um, Patrick, what do you think? Um, I think it's a lot like Pacific Rim, the movie, um, in that. You kind of it, it assumes that if you're partaking, you are, if not a fan of this genre or this style, at least familiar with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it doesn't beat you over the head with the fact that it's parodying a lot of noir tro- tropes. It just kind of throws them out there, and you're either going to pick up on it and appreciate that they're using them, or if you don't have that genre experience, a lot of it might fly over your head, and you might just think it's hammy and weird. Mm. I think I think that's true. I think that it, um, to that extent, it, it sort of appreciates and, and doesn't patronise its audience. It's sort of it's for people who are already sort of for it. You know, it's it's like a kind of almost like a friendship. Um, yeah, and I think that there's something there's something that appeals to me about the fact that Max literally, like very literally, has the writer's face. Like that is it's mm-hmm. Sa- it's Sam Lake. Who, you know, who wrote the game? That's his yeah. face scanned onto the character. So you you are playing as the writer in a way, and I've always found that quite, um, yeah, quite funny and and sort of like Ethan was saying. You know, they're just kind of deliberately writing. Honestly, oh, Reed was saying the most deliberately sort of tortured metaphors and stuff. Um, yeah, there is a sort of nod and a kind of knowing and um, yeah, uh, enjoyment to it and a kind of we're not ashamed of ourselves like he's literally in the game well Um, yeah and to go even further with that too when you look at kind of the tone uh the fact that i think it's that they didn't have the budget to to hire uh cutscene actors or not cutscene but uh like graphic novel uh Mm -hmm. artists to not jesus not artists i'm getting all twisted around what are you trying to say reed models (laughs) that's what i'm trying to say they didn't have the budget to hire models so when you have these supposed to be hardened gangsters and everything, it's it's a bunch of Finnish guys wearing yeah. oversized suits, and and there's <laughs> there's something to that as well. It's it's like Sam Lake being Max Payne. It's just 
it's almost like a high school project so mm. it has that level of we think this is awesome we're putting our faces right in it we're not mm -hmm. ashamed to be so uh, baldly in love with what we're doing here mm. yeah I think that's partly what makes it endearing um, and also adds adds to the sort of colour mm -hmm. and personality that I was talking about earlier on with all the kind of different plot elements and visuals and stuff it's just it's such a kind of there's like a lot to talk about you know there's just so many little bits here and there little moments little memories it's just kind of such a kind of vivid and like um, odorous kind of game there's just so much on it that you can talk about um, and yeah I think that in an age of especially shooters of being relatively devoid of personality and kind of machine-like to have a game where the makers of the game are also playing all the characters is yeah it's really nice well um, yeah and I mean I want to ask Ethan what he was thinking of this before when he brought it up but it's like when you're saying that they will just stick their personalities in it uh, you see in in like Alan Wake which is another remedy game uh, that they love Norse mythology that they just think it's the coolest thing and there's no reason really for them to inject it into this story, but they do. Mm. You know, like the the mobster who wants to summon demons to to help himself. Like you can see that they just thought, well, this stuff is like really cool. We want to throw this in here. Mm. And I was kind of wondering what the different reactions were to that overt Norse stuff. Uh, I love it. I think it's really good. I think it it. It's colourful and it's fun, and it, it adds to something that I want to get onto shortly, which is the the horror aspect of Max Payne, the kind of weird and surreal, and um, especially when I was playing it as as a as a boy when I, I bought it when it came out, so I'd have been eleven. I was terrified of Max Payne. I thought it was really frightening mm -hmm. in places, uh, and I think that the yeah the Norse stuff, the Jack Lapino character is is great. It's really really good. That whole level where you're kind of going through his nightclub and the music sort of segues into those like church bells, and there's you know blood and candles everywhere. It's like what the fuck am I playing now? Because you know, thirty minutes ago I was shooting gangsters in like a very typical kind of gang hideout, and now I'm I'm a bit, you know it's like David Lynch almost. It's it's really just a great sort of palette change and uh, yeah I, I love games for that I, I love games that do that they're just sort of willing to you know flip it all on its head you can make a boss way more frightening too when mm -hmm. when, when mm -hmm. you give him this very quickly just say that oh he's super into satanism and you know that yeah. he's going to howl about uh, Cthulhu and all these different uh, dark gods that he's interested in yeah yeah, and a really good performance as well by whoever played that character is great. He's really having fun with it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I love that section. I think that's probably one of my favourite in the game. Um, so, yeah, the horror elements. This is something that, that got lost a little bit with Max Payne 3, um, which is probably my favourite. <laughs> it's, it's probably my favourite in the series, actually, the third one, but I, oh, I was no. kind of disheartened by... Um, it kind of pulling back on those things. What did people think of the nightmare sequences? Because when I first played them again when I was 11, I found them really frustrating. Like, you know, what, why, the, why are these in here? I thought I was playing a shooting game. Um, Patrick, what did you think of those? I think <clears throat> I think they're effective, but I also think that they're overdone. I think the whole blood maze thing um, 
it was overly complicated. I think if they just gave you sort of one path to follow and occasionally you have to make a jump or whatever, you could have gotten the sort of same feeling across without essentially grinding the entire momentum of the game to a halt in, in two different places. Mm. Um, I found the, the earlier sections where you're kind of walking through his bizarro apartment to be much more frightening and much more unsettling just because it's a the whole play on the familiar space turned unfamiliar thing um but yeah when when it came time to do the the blood maze i was i i I don't know not my favorite part of the game uh ethan i agree with patrick in that i think it's it's one of those uh probably one of the more obvious examples in the game where people would have a better idea today of how to go how, how to kind of weave this line of making it playable but also um, imparting a lot of uh, mood and and sort of nuance into the story and character because it just doesn't I mean I, there was a number of times in the game where I got weird hiccups on like you know if you if you look in the wrong direction or get the cameras you know turned around for five seconds you all of a sudden forget where to go and it's mm-hmm. not necessarily very it's not very well choreographed where you need to go and no one's ever telling you where you need to go. So if you miss, if you, you know, for instance, if you forget where the exit signs are, or if you lose a trail or something, it can become sort of frustrating. But I, and I think that's, I think that actually works fine when you're getting through a place filled with enemies and sort of fighting your way through something. But I think when you're actually trying to do something more narrative, it actually, uh, again, when you slow the pace down, it, it actually distracts from everything else you're trying to do because now all of a sudden you're just focused on the very the nitty gritty of trying to actually get through something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's very true. Reed, well, I I kind of disagree. I I don't think they're enjoyable in any way to go through. But I remember this doing this again this time through, and it's scaring the bejesus out of me when I was a little kid. Not little kid, but you know, thirteen or so playing. So many these. little kids playing this gruesome game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was wrong with yeah? Our where were our parents? <laughs> um, but the one thing that those blood mazes and those never-ending hallways make you do is, I think, the most unsettling thing in in those parts are the sounds, where mm-hmm. you have a baby uh, crying, and then you have his wife essentially sniffling and dying and shouting his name, which is. Like legitimately really upsetting, you know. As as aged as the rest of the game is, those moments are. It's almost all the silliness kind of drops away, and it's actually pretty disturbing. Um, and the blood maze in the hallway that goes on forever, you have to turn up the volume, or really really concentrate on the sound because the louder the sound is, that means you're going the right way. Mm-hmm. And so. Mm-hmm. It is clever in one sense that it makes you really concentrate on the most upsetting thing that's happening at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's true; it's it's not they're not fun to go through, um, so they're not great design in that sense. But I do like that it makes you kind of it shoves your face against what's most unsettling that's going on in order to keep going. I, so I used to I used to play those sections on mute because I. I like you read, I, I found like when you fall off the blood maze, you get that horrible scream. Yeah, from yeah. like your baby or your wife. I can't remember who, but it, it's it's fucking blood curdling. And I I used to mute it because yeah, I found it really 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 unsettling. But how do you get through it then? 
Uh, just honestly, guesswork. Try, I, I, yeah, I'd rather guesswork my way. Well, back then at least, I'd rather guesswork my way through than listen to it. Like I was really frightened, um, and I think that that says something just on its own. Um, as for yeah, there's the sort of. I think that's a bigger problem in games is you know making something that's like a ludic challenge, but also, you know, narratively coherent and. Um, sort of flows in the way that a story ought to do, and I think that they absolutely nailed this with the second Max Payne game, where there's a terrific sequence towards the end of the first part where you're walking through uh, an abandoned funhouse, and oh, right. you've got you know you've got the you've got a path because the the funhouse is kind of because it's a fun it's a tourist attraction, so there are signs saying where you should go next quite naturally. Uh, but all of the sort of funhouse attractions and all the sort of ghosts jumping out and all the kind of cardboard cutouts. Uh, obviously designed in such a way that they speak to Max's, you know, personal experience. So you're walking through this, you know, very clearly telegraphed, easily playable environment, but also getting all these really great and sort of very well sort of drawn and really sort of flary, you know, visual signifiers popping out at you. It's, it's a terrific sequence. Um, and, you know, there's no combat in it, and it's just kind of like a really out of left field. It's a really sort of, you know, pivotal Max Payne moment. Um, yeah, I think the nightmare sequence is in the original you know, you could use more of that, and probably kind of a stepping stone towards you know, levels more like that. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoy them, though. I really enjoy the the sort of scariness of Max Payne because um, I think that it does it does rein in some of the more sort of postmodern fourth wall schlocky campy bits. It it puts some teeth on those. Well, yeah, it kind of it kind of slaps you in the face a bit too because you the beginning when the actual sequence happens when he comes into his home and you know the drug dealers are there and they they do they don't flinch away from showing you horrible things you know mm. e- even though it's it looks pretty crude now you know st- it's still shocking to see the the baby um on the floor next to its crib yeah. and, and to see his wife splayed out on the bed uh with mm-hmm. the you know pool of blood on her chest but um you you almost forget that as the game gets sillier, but then when it goes to these nightmare sequences, it kind of it's it's one of the most honest things the game does. Uh, it slaps you in the face with saying this is actually a horrible thing, that the crime isn't just gangsters, you know, saying one-liners around the corner. It's it's actually you know really traumatic stuff happening. Yeah, which is weird for yeah. that game, you know. Hmm. Yeah. I feel like now the wife character would reappear as a, as like a ghost or like a voice in Max's head uh. or something <laughs> to sort of to kind of dilute that that opening. They consider it a bit too hard and a bit too bleak, and they'd have her sort of reappear or something nowadays. Um, and there's a really great. I don't know why I'm bringing this up. I think I, just just for the sake of mentioning it, really, it doesn't tie into anything. But there's a really great moment in that very opening level which I've always loved, where you can hear her screaming upstairs. And you run into the bathroom because the bathroom has a shortcut. It's an ensuite bathroom. Yeah, uh, it's a shortcut into the bedroom. And you try and open the door, and it's blocked. Like the bookcase has fallen in front of it, and you can't push this door open. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can just sort of you, you open it like just a crack, and you can hear more clearly all of a sudden what's happening in that room, but you can't get in. You have to go around the long way, and of course, by the time you get there, you're too late. And then when you play that bit in the nightmare, and you try that door, these big doom 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 like yeah planks yeah. of wood appear over the door you know you can't get in and I, I love that because he doesn't remark on it he doesn't say anything and it's not like a kind of big recurring metaphor it's just this like one 
you know, plant and payoff moment of I noticed that, he noticed that, and that was, yeah, that stuck in his mind as well. I, I really love that. It's interesting to think that for as kind of campy and almost kind of, I mean, silly is not the right word, but we'll say silly. Um, for a game that has so many of those qualities, it also kind of shows a tremendous respect for the intelligence of the people who are playing it. Mm. Um, just because of all of these reasons, um, it doesn't. It really is content to just kind of let you figure things out on your own. And if you get them, that's awesome. And if not, then I mean, you still have bullet time, I guess. Mm. Yeah, that's it. It doesn't. It doesn't throw its weight around, but it's also, you know, it, it's not condescending. It doesn't think sort of lowly of the player. It's it's this kind of a, a really confident game. I think that doesn't need to sort of brag, but also doesn't need to downplay its itself. Um, I'm trying to think of like really other interesting talking points. Um, I think one thing I wanted to ask, I'll put this one to Ethan first, is um, obviously the game is set into three parts. Uh, do you think that there is one or two that are weaker than the other? Do you think that the game starts well and gets worse or vice versa? You know, Is there any point where it sags for you? Um, I, th- I think actually the, the three acts are pretty balanced um obviously i think the first one has the benefit of the fact that you're still getting used to everything and still you know coming to terms with the the world and the character whereas with any kind of game or you know by the last act you're there's a part of it that is not as fresh and you're kind of like oh it's it's like your your second or third time around the block um but I actually think on the whole, and I think most of the Max Payne's, Max Payne games have been good at this, I think it's actually a pretty balanced act structure um, in the way that it deepens the the level of the conflict with each act beyond just, you know, this immediate uh, mob boss or uh, enemy. It kind of it, it brings it to you know, a more nefarious level with every, every new... Uh, I guess they're not what parts... Mm. Parts one, two, and three. Um, so I actually I think it works quite well. Okay, Patrick, what do you think? Um, for me, the game kind of slows down toward the end of the second act or part, I guess, and the beginning of the third. Once it starts getting really kind of large scale and, and grand, and there are these huge firefights with like mercenary armies and stuff, it kind of loses a little bit of the original sort of feeling, at least for, for me, um, but that's not to say that I think they're particularly bad segments. Mm-hmm. I think they're just a little bit separated from the, the tone that they built up in the earlier parts of the game. I, I kind of agree with Patrick, but the thing is, I was thinking about that because when you start getting to when Max starts you know, following the trail beyond the mob bosses and he goes to uh, it's like a smelting plant where they have a secret military base beneath there and everything. Uh, it's kind of like, for me, this is how I usually feel with any kind of detective story. Once once you start getting to the larger players behind everything, you know, once, once the detective has finished roughing up the, the street-level people, it's never as interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. I, I don't know if that's just me with something with that form in general. It's like in horror where it's never as scary once you finally yeah. see the monster. Yeah, it's I'm never as interested in 
what's actually going on as I am in just kind of how everything is the, being the set. The process of unraveling? Yeah. So I don't know, like, I, I think the, the quality of, of the encounters and everything is pretty consistent throughout, and I think it is paced well, but it's just, uh, uh, I, I like the kind of decrepit parts of the game when he's when he's going through those apartment blocks or the hotel and by the time you're going through a big high rise at the end I'm just kind of less interested in it aesthetically mm -hmm. uh, yeah I, I totally agree with you Reed. I, um, I yeah I don't think that the, the, the narrative really suffers because I, I think like Ethan said it's a pretty competent you know third act structure of everything sort of escalates and broadens and so on but yeah just environmentally from those really great places in the first act of like the abandoned nightclub, the hotels, the subway station, and then you're playing these, I think quite rote video game locations, you know, like a dock, mm -hmm. a, a warehouse, a, warehouse yeah. a factory, exactly. Um, and it, it feels like a lot of their best ideas were sort of splurged in the, you know, the opening sort of hour or two, which is fine, which is, you know, pretty intelligent, really. Um, but yeah, I, I, completely with Reed, I, I find it less interesting which I know what's going on. Um, and I think I one of the reasons that I do like Max Payne 3 so much is that the biggest that ever gets really, the sort of closest you get to the sort of mercenaries or army guys is a level set in a police station and you're fighting cops as opposed to just like criminals. Mm -hmm. And that's the sort of nearest you get to, you know, the sort of end scale of the original Max Payne. Um, yeah, you yeah. almost you almost wish that uh, there's a part, I think in the the third act where you go to meet the uh, the crooked cop and you get ambushed in that parking garage. Yeah. And to me, that was kind of as as yeah. as advanced as I wanted it to get. You know, it was kind of just you're in a parking garage, so it's not quite as dirty and run down, but it still feels very, uh, you know, you're in the heart of a city and you're fighting guys who are more competent. But mm. it's not slick guys wearing tactical vests, roping in places, and, and that level of things. Yeah, yeah. The the last the last section, you know, you of the game proper, where you arrive at that high rise building, you know, you kind of walk through like metal detectors, and there are like laser grids, and a big helicopter chasing you around, and it's all a bit sort of Matrix lobby shooting scene. Um, Deliberately so, I imagine. But yeah, I think that they lose themselves a little bit, especially in that third part. Um, but um, it's still, yeah, very strong throughout. I really like the, the the mansion in the second part where you kind of invade oh, yeah. the mansion. That's a great. Oh level. yeah, that's a really fantastic. I like that. Level. I like the the mission structure there, where you're you're not just kind of going from point A to point B, you're hunting down these three yeah. hitmen. I like that. Yeah, it's really good. And they don't get like a big oratory and cutscene, like, oh, I am the biggest hitman, blah, blah, blah. They're just kind of in amongst the guys. And um, yeah, you just pick them off and then you finally get to the top dog. Um, yeah, it's, it's really nicely done, that, that, that mansion scene. And Max even says too, when you take them down, which is, I think, a pretty good acknowledgement that it's a video game, is he'll go one down two to go yeah go two yeah. down one more yeah you know it kind of uh it gives you a good feeling of progression that he's really you know he's taking something on but it also feels nice and gamey too yeah gamey and in, in a lot well in a lot of games you'd get that as a sort of pop-up in writing you know like a ticked off objective right um yeah i much prefer him having 
him saying it. And I think there's actually something maybe broader in Max Payne's objective structure uh, in that he's often sort of telling you what to do, as sort of, you know, because he's regaling you the story. Yeah, it's the the whole Alan Wake thing. Yeah. Yeah, you... where he narrate he narrates to you what you're going to make him do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an interesting feedback loop um, that feels a lot sort of more natural and kind of oh, I hate using this word, but sort of filmic than just um, objectives popping up on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more sort of organic. Um, so, if anyone's got any closing remarks or, or questions or points that they'd like to discuss on Max Payne, anyone? Well, just just before I. It's a thread that we left behind somewhere, and I wanted to, when we were talking about the, the inclusion of Norse mythology and everything, I wanted to hear, because Ethan mentioned something before about liking kind of the grandeur it leads, it, it lends to the story or something. It, I think it, uh, it at least gives it a tone of something more, I guess, you know, apocalyptic. There's obviously there's a giant storm going on and the way it sort of leads to this sense of impending doom and that you're you're kind of you're fighting this struggle that i mean it's supposed to be a revenge story to a degree but there's not any real satisfaction i don't think to be taken from Mm -hmm. the end or the conclusion of the game it's kind of like it's it's not like that's somehow a way of making up for what happened. It's just kind of like this is at, at that point, you know, Max has moved beyond the sort of normal moral valence of the world, and now it's just about having these epic moments that have larger and larger stakes and larger and larger conflicts uh, in terms of you know number of enemies and who you're shooting and the obstacles you're able to overcome. That it, it gives. It gives it. It kind of helps you situate it in a in a a story that is more or less familiar, um, or at least has a feeling of being uh, more. I'm trying to think of. Uh, not heightens not the right word. It's kind here, of like but bigger. Has a yeah, and and it, again, I guess epic, or just in the sense of it's it's a conflict that goes beyond the politics of the the agency with this drug and mm-hmm. these wars and these corrupt cops and these mob bosses to a sort of, you know, at some point it's just about being able to make, you know, to take out these enemies and make this thing happen and bring the story to con- a conclusion. Because, mm. you know, but there's so many moments where Max is literally just like, uh, what do I do now? Yeah, and and he's just kind of like, you know, I, I don't know about you guys, but I played the game with, for whatever reason, I was very stingy with my... Uh, my painkillers and you're basically always playing with the, the pain threshold all the way up to your neck and so you're constantly like every time you get hit with anything you're you're immediately hobbling around and yep. there's the sense of him sort of like you're going to you're going to bring the conclusion of the game together no matter what mm. Mm. yeah i just yeah i think that's an interesting point because there is that sense they do this really well where it's almost a diehard thing uh it feels very much. I mean, it take, it's you know, it's winter. It, it, I'm not going to call Max Payne a Christmas game, but it feels like the closest thing you could get to it. Where it definitely, I, I definitely feel there's a, a very similar mood to Die Hard. It feels like a Christmas game to me because I used to play this at Christmas when my brother came home from university with his computer. Are you serious? Yeah, and so he'd, oh, he'd come back, and then I, I would beeline through this game over the two or so weeks that he was home. 
Um, but I was saying to that that thing about it's you know diehard ish, but also kind of in the tradition of of uh, heroic cycles and epic poetry where your hero is is just being beaten to shit and is just continuing to press on because the most important thing is is finishing, you know. Yeah. And yeah, he doesn't really have a goal other than just to get to the end well, of the game. Well, he even basically. says a few times, like when he when he's uh, sets the smelting plant with the underground military bunker to self destruct, that he doesn't care if he dies. He just wants to know what's going on, you know. And, he, and then he just mm-hmm. and then that turns right. into he just wants to kill. I uh, forget her name. The the head of the project, Nicole Horn. Horn, yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> There's some good names in this game too, mm, mm. like Max Payne, Jim Bravura. <laughs> yeah, Jim Bravura is one of my favorites. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really it. I think that the the Norse mythology sort of framework, yeah, it does it. It, it epitomizes Max as a kind of literary figure, and his role, as much as killing Nicole and finding out what happened to his family, is just being the sort of narrator and unifying element of this story like that's what he's here for as much as anything else mm-hmm. um yeah like what like ethan said it, it it sort of excludes the politics of the group that did this or even like the politics of the story that's happening to max and just makes it into a kind of yeah grander uh tale of just finishing yeah just getting to the end of a narrative um yeah 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 i think that's absolutely right that's really true um okay i mean is there anything else this game's good. Uh, well, it's, I got to a, one, two other things. One was it's just kind of piggyback off of what uh, about Die Hard and Christmas, and there's definitely in the first part of the game a feeling, I, and I think you could definitely extend the first part of the game into into kind of being its own complete thing. But it definitely it feels like almost the to the degree that Max Payne is an antihero. It feels like the sort of opposite of It's a Wonderful Life, where like there's this sense of you're going through the snow and there's all these horrible it's it's like it has this weird feeling of like you know this can't actually be happening to this guy and this isn't actually like what he was meant to do or be and yet you're you're going from through all these tenements and everything is completely horrible and yet there's not like it's not like at the end of it you get to you know be saved by some angel or have things reversed it's like no you just at the end of it you get to walk out of this building in one piece and that's the only solace you have Mm-hmm. Um, which is, you know, that's if if there's a, a Christmas story I want to convey to my future children, it's definitely that. <laughs> Sit them down in front of the fireplace and <laughs> let me tell you a story. Um, the other thing is, and this is, you know, it's it's more of a coincidence than anything else, but I think it's interesting. The so the PlayStation version, the PlayStation Two version of the game came out in December of two thousand and one, and the game you know, on PC came out in July, and it's, I don't know, it's got to be what one of the last shooters to be made and released pre 9-11 which is clearly more of a thing in the US but it definitely feels like there's there's a playing this game it made me wonder it it almost feels like it was an alternate route that the sort of zeitgeist of shooters could have taken in the decade from 2000 to 2010 that would have been much less emphasis on sort of military campaigns and the Call of Duty Medal of Honor route and the way this game plays with not only noir but also the occult and horror it just, it just made me think of all these more interesting ways in which you could have been making shooters and thinking about them beyond just 
you know, having a, someone on a battlefield standing behind cover shooting at people. Yeah. Um, it's... I know for a fact that, that Medal of Honor, that a lot of the people who worked on the, the old Medal of Honor games were kind of approached and by, by the publisher, which was EA, and kind of told, you know, this is the way that we need to go, i.e. the more sort of battlefield terrorism, etc. And they were resistant to it. Uh, and a lot of them left and formed Spark as 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 a result. Uh, they didn't want to do that. Um, but yeah, I, I would be interested to see. <laughs> this is like a really blunt sentiment and a, a ridiculous and awful thing to say. Um, but it, it is interesting to imagine what shooters would have been like. Yeah. Had, you know, had nine eleven not happened, like what 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 would we have instead? Um, and I think that yeah, Max Payne is a good example of that almost almost well there there are a lot of interesting stories you can tell using um war and using the west going to war um and almost noir type stories in terms of having a hero or having a heroic force that is going to go after a, a larger systemic evil which is you know what what noir is really good at is is trying to identify why crime happens you know the mm. the big bad behind everything is going to be representative of a system not not of an evil person um, and you can do that in war stories but I feel like it's too easy not to if mm. does that make sense yeah yeah um, I'm thinking like you know in, in when modern warfare came out call of duty modern warfare it tried to, I think, do something similar, um, and but that was forgotten because I think the message everyone wanted uh, was mm -hmm. the military shooter as as just a just a way to kind of just rage in, instead mm -hmm. of thinking. And there there's a shortage of stories that that you can really tell within that framework without repeating yourself. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know. Whereas crime stories, I th I think, are a bit more malleable. And you can bring them through different cultures, and and people can interpret them in different ways. Whereas the war story is gonna boil down to, I, I don't know, maybe that's a bit simplistic. That's just what I was thinking. Do you think there are any shooters? This is open floor question. There are any shooters that are, you know, since 9/11, uh, not as defined by that event. You know, anything that kind of exists outside that mold, and is perhaps more akin, you know to Max Payne, is there anything that stands out to you in the mainstream, in like boxed releases? <laughs> is that a tough question? Yeah, I don't yeah, I can't really think of anything. See, I think of Kane and Lynch, maybe. You know, that's like oh, a, yes, that's a, that's a crime story. Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe Bioshock. I mean, mm, uh, I don't know. Bioshock feels like, feels, but yeah, Bioshock feels like kind of a reaction to the kinds of shooters that arose after 9-11 almost, like a kind of rebuttal of yeah. being led around and told what to believe. Yeah, that, that's why it's a hard question, is because in some way, even the games yeah. who don't immediately draw from that are at least reacting to that. Mm. Yeah, mm. I think it's almost impossible to uh, to not react to something that, even if you're not American, it's, it's something that fundamentally changed you know, the, the last 20-odd yeah, yeah, years. Uh, for everyone in the world, um, yeah, 
I don't know. I think about games too. Like there's the the stalker games and the metro games, which to me feel like they don't give a shit about the West. Mm. <laughs> like like they're just they're still processing the 20th century uh, in Eastern Europe. Yeah. And to me, in in some senses, that feels like, well, it's fantastic because it's it's saying we don't we have our own issues that we're working out. Um, with the, <laughs> with those games just centering on kind of. Uh, just lawlessness and uh, uh, just the hostility of, of the landscape and just people in general. To me, that feels mm. not connected to what we've been doing in the West with games and mm. and everything. Well, we like making games where we can conquer things, not where we have to contend with things. Right. And I think it's a distinction that um, you can typically tell games that were made by Eastern developers apart because of that. Uh, Metro is the one that I played. I haven't played Stalker, but Metro is definitely that. It's all about surviving a hostile environment. Yeah, it's about it's about coexisting or, or making the best out of a terrible situation rather than beating that terrible situation into submission. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, excuse me. I'm looking at my shelf now, and the one shooter that stands out to me as being heavily influenced by Max Payne and perhaps not as influenced by, you know, the, the crop of war shooters that we've all come to know and adore, obviously, is um, the darkness, the original darkness. Oh yeah. Uh, I think has a hell of a lot in common with Max Payne. I think there's a hell of a lot of Max Payne in there. Um, in as much as you know, it's a, a, it's New York City, and B, you know, there's horror elements, there's surrealism, there's like this low protagonist who's trying to avenge a, you know, dead female loved one. I mean, that's not a Max Payne thing that's in every single video game ever thing but um, yeah I think that's that's a really interesting example of it almost it almost feels like it exists in a bit of a vacuum from the rest of shooters of the past and 10 years I think it's worth noting that the darkness kind of crashed and burned commercially. yeah mm. yeah and and was based on uh, I think I had this right it was based on a comic book from the 90s it was it's a series of comic books yeah yeah so yeah. some of that sensibility too is is informed by uh, by something that was happening pre nine eleven as well. Mm, true. Yeah. And if you play the second Darkness game, which is absolutely terrible, um, yeah, that feels much more like you know a shooter in big capital letters right. as we know them now. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that's an interesting example. Um, but okay, I think we'll probably leave it there. Uh, I don't think there's anywhere we can really. Go after talking about nine eleven. Kind of <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a bucket of cold water. Uh, sorry, <laughs> the podcast. Um, but of course, we need to rate Max Payne now. Uh, again, Ethan, as the guest, you have first rating privileges. So, oh, out of ten, Ethan, what would you give Max Payne one? Six point five. Oh. Ooh. What negative? It's Do you hear this guy? It's Do you hear this guy? It's obviously a seven. It's obviously a seven. <laughs> yeah. it's like sorry, I've only I only listened to two episodes. I didn't know if that was the thing I was supposed to use every time. It's seven. It's always seven. Yeah. <laughs> there's only one. There's only one review score. Patrick, what is it? Seven out of ten. Read. Yeah, it's no Ocarina of Time. It's a seven out of ten. Well, Ocarina, Ocarina of Time is ten out of ten. Every other video. And and every every other game is seven out of ten. That's right. And I think Final Fantasy VII 
is maybe 9 out of 10. I think it's a 9.5. Mm-hmm. Oh, is it a 9.5? That's why they're remaking Sorry, it, yeah. to try to get to the 10. Right, right, I see. <laughs> I need a couple more graphics. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> are there any other 10s out of 10, or is Ocarina of Time the only one? Uh, no, there are. Do we have to do this? Do we have to say Super Mario and and then what else? Oh no, there's, I'm trying to think of like the, the, the you know the the tenniest out of ten game that there is. Half Life. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Half Life Two. Yeah. Yeah, we gotta do that, that and give that give that bastard a seven out of ten. Well, it is a seven out of ten. It, it, that it's one actually is no. It's a. F- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not that we haven't yeah. been sincere with every other rating, but yeah, yeah, half life two is a genuine seven out of ten. <laughs> yeah, um, and another, I'll tell you what is a ten out of ten game. Read uh, a, a solid ten out of ten. Oh God! Well, wait. You know what I'm gonna. T- you know what I'm gonna say. Keep everyone in suspense, and then do the do the find us at, and then and then we'll okay. reveal what it okay, is. Okay. Well, We'll circle back around to this stone cold ten on ten that we're going to do next time. Uh, in the meantime, I've been your host Ed Smith. I've been joined by Reed McCarter. Now, Reed, what have you been up to? And where can we find you on the internet? I've been writing words about video games and at really at different places. But if you go to wow. at Reed McCarter on uh, on the old Twitter dot com, then I'll mm. be tweeting stuff about where I've been writing. Now, Twitter.com—that's a social network, isn't it's it? It's a—it's a microblogging platform. Right. Um, right. Some use it as a social network. I use it to uh, microblog throughout the day. Is it SEO friendly? It is SEO friendly. You can actually uh, incorporate hashtags into there. So, for instance, wow. hashtag bullet points. Yeah, that's my favorite hashtag. <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah, that's that's top of my list of hashtags. That's right. Uh, Patrick, where can we find you, and what have you been doing? Um, I write, um, and if, if and when I do write things, I will put them on my Twitter, which you can find at twitter.com slash hanfreakinsolo. Hashtag Star Wars. It, Hashtag The Force yeah. Awakens. And you love SEO. Oh, yeah. You love SEO, oh, don't you, Patrick? I, I do. I, I, I do. I asked for SEO for my birthday, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Ethan, how about you? Uh, I also write words on the internet. Um, most of them are on uh, Twitter.com, <laughs> where I can be found at E-T-H-A-N-G-C-G-A-C-H. Um, I also write words many other places, but who knows when they'll ever get published. Okay. But well, that's that, you can find me at Killscreen. That's, um, yeah, that's always a bit of a, isn't it? Like, you write something, and, like, months go by. <laughs> like, like, hey, guys, look, uh, look out for this upcoming piece. It's going to be awesome two months later. Oh, uh... Yeah. Called, well, and the called. fact that this is going to be, this will be posted not to uh, reveal the secret sauce. I mean, it's January first, right? Is that when this happens? I don't know. Probably. <laughs> probably. Probably around then. Yeah, this is going to be a post-Christmas podcast. I know. I, I kind of blew the. This might even be a 2016 podcast. Oh, yeah. No, I really want our first podcast of 2016 to be our upcoming 10 out of 10. Our secret game. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, you can find me also on twitter.com where I am constantly um, hashtagging and SEOing and atting people uh, and sort of liking and retweeting because that's what we do over there on the Twitter service. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oh, and engaging. Don't forget engaging. Oh, I'm engaging all this. I'm engaged now. I've been engaging this entire time. Oh, congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. I've been really working hard on that. Um, 
yeah, it's going well. Uh, but you can find me on there at most sincerely ed, uh, which, as I've explained in the past, is a Wizard of Oz pun. Uh, for anyone who got that without me explaining that, well done. Good for you. Um, so that only leaves me to say that our next game on the next episode of Bullet Points is going to be the best game that we've ever talked about. It's my favourite game. Uh, it should be your favourite game. It's Battlefield Hardline, which uh, I think we've all played and loved. Uh, we all own the limited special police shootout edition, um, which comes with a gun. And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we're, we're, all, we're all really, really happy to be doing it because we love it so much and it's just going to be an hour of us just kind of struggling not to, like, orgasm because it's so amazing that we're just going to have to really rein it in during that discussion, how much we love it. I mean, Reed, you adore it. Oh, it's delightful. It's your favourite. I mean, it was up for sale for $12, but you paid, like, 50 just because you wanted he, to. Yeah, he, he insisted, actually, that he paid... I felt price. bad, yeah. yeah. I sent the developer an extra $50. Um, he, he was worried about EA not making enough money on its right. games. <laughs> they work so hard. They deserve it. Um, I am joking, of course. It's an enormous pile of shit. And, <laughs> and join us next and, time. And our next episode will be filled with nothing but fucking vitriol <laughs> and invective and the sound of me fucking vomiting blood and trying to the reach bullet. through my computer to punch Reed in the face for <laughs> suggesting this fucking game in the first place. The bullet points piss and vinegar edition. Happy holidays! Yeah, precisely. So enjoy your Christmas, unless you're listening to this after Christmas, because we might not release until after Christmas, in which case I hope you enjoyed your Christmas. But enjoy next Christmas as well, because that's going to be <laughs> imminent by the time you listen to this. Uh, I've been Ed Smith, with me has been Reed McCarter. Yeah. Patrick Lindsay. Yeah. Hello, hello, yeah. or goodbye, goodbye. And I'll get it right this time, Ethan Gatch. Yes, yes, have a good night. Thank you, everybody. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>